Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 42, the book of Revelation, chapter 19, continued. To begin, we're going to review some of the complex matters we discussed last week. Now, the, the first is the issue of, of trying to square Daniel's interpretation of, of Nebuchadnezzar's dream statue that he said represented four kingdoms, three of which were future kingdoms that were to come into succession after Babylon. And this is versus John's vision of a seven-headed beast whose heads were said to represent seven mountains that themselves symbolize governments or kingdoms. Some of them are in his past, some are future to him. Now part of the key to understanding how these two sets of, of kingdom lists compare is to notice that while Daniel's begins with Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, that's Babylon, and it ends with the Roman kingdom, John's vision offers us a more panoramic tour of history. It's broader, more inclusive, so it lists more kingdoms. So we can say that the primary difference between the two lists of kingdoms is that Daniel's list is limited and incomplete as compared to John's. However, it's only incomplete because Daniel's list was centuries earlier than John's and because it was designed to communicate one purpose while John's list was designed to communicate a different purpose. Now John's list begins with the Egyptian kingdom that existed more than 10 centuries before Daniel's Babylon. Why is that? It's because John's list deals with all the kingdoms that had, have, and will have any direct relationship with and impact upon Israel. See, the first kingdom of history passed to deal with Israel was the Egyptian kingdom. No kingdom before Egypt had any dealings with Israel, such as the one that's called the Old Babylonian Kingdom that flourished at its height under Hammurabi not long after the Great Flood. And this is because Israel didn't come into existence until well into the Egyptian Kingdom period. And as we followed the progression of John's seven kingdoms, all of them Gentile, of course, that's Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Media Persia, Media Persia, Greek, Rome, and then Ottoman, it is clear that Israel suffered under every one of them. And an eighth kingdom that is still into our future, the kingdom of the Antichrist, will again be persecutors of Israel. Now Daniel's list omits the ancient Egyptian and Assyrian kingdoms look up here on the on the chart all right that became before that came before Babylon was established late in the 7th century BC 
But then his list of kingdoms continues in agreement with John's list because after Babylon comes the Media Persian, then the Greek, then the Roman kingdoms. Daniel's list goes no further forward than Rome and it omits the future Ottoman Empire and the even more future Kingdom of the Antichrist. Why is that? Because the specific purpose of Daniel's kingdom list was to show King Nebuchadnezzar what was going to happen to his empire in the future. Before beginning his interpretation of the dream, Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2, verses 29 to 30, Your Majesty, when you were in bed, you began thinking about what would take place in the future. And he who reveals secrets has revealed to you what will happen. Yet this secret has not been revealed to me because I am wiser than anyone living, but so that the meaning can be made known to your majesty. And then you can understand the thoughts of your own mind. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's king, uh, kingdom of Babylon would be seized by the Media Persians. Then the Media Persians would lose the kingdom to the Greeks. And then the Greeks would lose the kingdom to the Romans. But for the most part, the landmass and the various nations controlled by Babylon, and then each of the three succeeding empires or kingdoms was approximately the same. That is, roughly the same area changed hands over the centuries and so was controlled by different governments. And what would be that history-changing event that occurred during the fourth kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar's vision that was the Roman Empire period? The advent of Christ. And thus in Daniel's interpretation, he takes it no further forward than when the rock, presumably Jesus Christ, comes and symbolically smashes that entire statue that represents the four kingdoms of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So Daniel takes us from his time in exile in Babylon, just after 600 B.C., to the first coming of Christ, which is about 4 B.C. John, however, deals primarily with the second coming of Christ in the end times that's still ahead of us. Now the second matter I'd like to review is this issue of kingdoms versus kings. That is, Revelation tells us that there is to be a succession of seven kingdoms before the end times, but there's also to be a succession of seven kings before the end times. Now it's been assumed, almost universally, that each of the seven kings is directly attached to and is ruled over one or another of, uh, of each of the seven kingdoms. In other words, one king to one kingdom. However, there's much ambiguity in the wording of what Daniel says about this, as well as what John has to say about it, such that various Bible scholars have suggested solutions ranging from these kings referring to seven Catholic popes to referring to seven successive Roman emperors, all the way to try to guessing, to try, uh, trying to guess at which of the many kings over each kingdom this might be indicating. Now, my take is 
I'm not at all convinced that the seven seven kings have a direct or sequential association with those seven kingdoms. That is, there are seven kingdoms that play significant roles in redemption history, but separately, there are also seven kings who play significant roles in redemption history. And, in addition, there will be an eighth kingdom in the end times that will coincide with the appearance of an eighth king. But as I said last week, while it is fairly straightforward to conclude that the eighth kingdom will be ruled over by an eighth king, that's the Antichrist, essentially that eighth kingdom is what was once the Babylon the Great of the end times. It's just that the Antichrist finds a way to put himself in charge of it by using the several kings represented by the ten horns of the beast to do away with the government of Babylon the Great. Okay, now the final matter I'd like to review is this issue of Revelation 19.6 saying that Adonai, God of Heaven's armies, has begun his reign. Now this is a little bit confusing because whether Jew or Christian, we've assumed that God has always reigned over his creation. And yet, there has also been this issue of God allowing Satan to have much authority over Earth's inhabitants as the prince of the air. What I think is happening here is that this is speaking of a time when history is entering into the millennial kingdom period. That is, after Satan has been chained up and thrown into the abyss, after Armageddon, and after Christ has returned to claim his kingdom. And I especially think this proves out because of what comes next. The wedding of the Lamb. Let's reread part of Revelation chapter 19. So turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19 and follow along with me. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, we are going to be on page 1552. 1552. Starting at verse 9. Pardon me, verse 6. Verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like the roar of a huge crowd, like the sound of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah! Adonai, God of heaven's armies, has begun his reign. Let us rejoice and be glad. Let us give him the glory. For the time has come for the wedding of the Lamb. And his bride has prepared herself. Fine linen, bright and clean, has been given to her to wear. Fine linen means means the righteous deeds of God's people. Then the angel said to me, Write, how blessed are those who have been been invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And then he added, these are God's very words. I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said, don't do that. I'm only a fellow servant with you and your brothers who have the testimony of Yeshua. Worship God. For the testimony of Yeshua is the spirit of prophecy. Well, next I saw heaven opened, and there before me was a white horse, and sitting on it was the one called Faithful and True. And it is in righteousness that he passes judgment and he goes to battle. His eyes were like a fiery flame, on his head were many royal crowns, and he had a name written which no one knew but himself. 
He was wearing a robe that had been soaked in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with with which to strike down nations. He will rule them with a staff of iron. It is he who treads the winepress from which flows the wine of the furious rage of Adonai, God of heaven's armies. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out in a loud voice to all the birds that fly about in mid-heaven, Come, gather together for the great feast God is giving, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of generals, the flesh of important men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all kinds of people, free and slaves, small and great. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathering together to do battle with the rider of the horse and his army. But the beast was taken captive. And with it, the false prophet, who in its presence had done the miracles which he had used to deceive those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped his image. The beast and the false prophet were both thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword that goes out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. The scene that's unfolding is taking place mostly in heaven. So, it's important to remember that every description of beings and objects in heaven are fashioned after physical beings and objects on earth to help humans get some kind of a grasp on what's happening. And we have all this rejoicing in heaven going on because God has advanced his agenda of bringing evil under control and eradicating those who oppose him to an end. For the last few chapters in Revelation, this opposition has been symbolized by all that is Babylon the Great. So those who have held on to their allegiance to God, refusing to take on the mark of the beast, even if it meant their death, they are rewarded for their perseverance. Well, now we come to one of the most talked about events in evangelical Christianity, the wedding of the Lamb. And says verses 7 and 8, the Lamb's bride has prepared herself in beautiful attire that epitomizes her absolute purity. To begin verse 9, we're told that those who are invited to the wedding feast are greatly blessed. Now, the rather universally accepted understanding within Christianity is that the bride of Christ is the church and that those invited to the wedding feast are generally the same as the church as well. Let's explore this by beginning with a passage taken from Revelation chapter 21. If you want to follow along with me, go there now. Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 through 27. Just a couple pages over from where you are. 
One of the seven angels, having the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, approached me. And he said, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me off in the spirit to the top of a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It had the Shekinah of God, so that its brilliance was like that of a priceless jewel, like a crystal clear diamond. It had great high walls with twelve gates, and that the gates were twelve angels, and inscribed on the gates were the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. Now there were three gates to the east, three gates to the north, three gates to the south, and three gates to the west. And the wall of the city was built on twelve foundation stones. And on these were the twelve names of the twelve emissaries, that's the twelve disciples, of the Lamb. And the angel speaking with me had a gold measuring rod with which to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. And the city is laid out in a square, its length equal to its width. And with his rod he measured the city at 1,500 miles, with length, width, and height the same. He measured its wall at 216 feet by human standards of measurement, which the angel was using. Now the wall was made of diamond, the city of pure gold resembling pure glass. The foundations of the city wall were decorated with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation stone was diamond. The second, sapphire. The third, Chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh turquoise, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The city's main street was pure gold, transparent as glass. Now I saw no temple in the city, for Adonai, God of heaven's armies, is its temple, as is the Lamb. The city has no need for the sun or the moon to shine on it, because God's Shekinah gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Its gates will never close. They stay open all day because night will not exist there. And the honor and splendor of the nations will be brought into it. This passage specifically, clearly, unequivocally says that the new redeemed Jerusalem is the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Even more, the infrastructure of the new Jerusalem is explained in some detail, including that the city had 12 gates that were named for 12 tribes of Israel. Further, the city had 12 special foundation stones that were named for the 12 original disciples of the Lamb, who, if you'll remember, were all Jews. So, how are we to take this? First, let's discuss this accepted notion that it is the church that is the bride of the Lamb. 
Now, unless one is from another planet and has just arrived on Earth, it's common knowledge that to the leadership of the institutional church and to the vast majority of its members, the church is of, by, and for Gentile believers in Christ. Now, there are those who allow for Jews to join, but generally only if they give up some or all of their Jewishness. There, of course, are what is called Messianic Jews, that's Jews who trust Yeshua as Savior, who belong to Messianic synagogues. But the institutional church generally does not include them in the definition of the church. Actually, the institutional church isn't quite sure what to do with Messianic Jews, since if they attend a synagogue, it generally means to them that they are Jews who recognize Christ as Savior, but still depend on obedience to the law as their means to salvation. So this is why I am most reluctant to accept the standard Christian viewpoint that the bride of Christ is the church. It's because I understand what the church means by that and also who it excludes. Now second, are we to assume that the bride, that since the bride is Jerusalem, that Yeshua is marrying some huge blocks of stone and several fabulous gates? That is, that Yeshua's bride is literally the walls, gates, and streets of the city of Jerusalem? Well, the short answer is no. All throughout the Bible, when Jerusalem is mentioned as being unfaithful to God or Jerusalem is condemned for its idolatrous rays, it's not referring to the stone blocks and the paved streets. It means the inhabitants of Jerusalem. It means the same thing here in Revelation. So indeed, it is redeemed people that call Jerusalem their home that are Christ's bride. The redeemed people consist of Gentiles and Jews, and yet the commemorative gates and foundation stones memorialize memorialize Israelites, not Gentiles. The city infrastructure is modeled after Israelite Jerusalem, even using the same city name. So once again, Israel is front and center in God's plan of redemption. And Gentile believers, we, we need to realize that we have been graciously joined to Israel and are neither superior to Israel, nor are we Israel's replacements. Now let's flesh this out a little further. I've spoken to you in times past that the Bible tells us us of two advents of Christ and of two latter days or end times that are directly connected to each of his advents. But we also hear about two redemptions of Christ's people, Israel. The first was when they were redeemed from Egypt and their oppressors were destroyed. Thereafter, at Mount Sinai, a covenant was agreed to between Israel and Jehovah. Now, from time immemorial, rabbis have commented that on Mount Sinai, there was a betrothal of Israel as the bride to God as the husband. In the Old Testament, Israel and Jerusalem are regularly called the bride of God. 
Therefore, it should be no surprise that there is a second redemption of Israel in the end times that looks an awful lot like the first one. And that is at least partly what we are witnessing in Revelation. Now, marriage is a metaphor in the Bible for covenant. Now, I want to say this again because I'm not sure this has ever really taken hold among believers. Marriage and covenant are very nearly one and the same. A covenant between God and His worshipers creates an intimate and an unbreakable union. But since this occurs in the invisible spiritual sphere, God has provided a way for humankind to better understand the force of effect of a covenant with Him by giving us the visible institution of marriage in the physical sphere. This is why we read so much in the Bible about weddings and brides and bridegrooms and husbands and wives and we have several spiritual lessons given to us by Yeshua that uses the illustration of marriage and betrothal and in fact he uses this in some of his parables. A covenant with God is also guaranteed by God. Therefore it will not be broken, at least not on his side. It is why it breaks my heart to hear Christianity insist that God not only broke but he discarded his covenant with Moses that in reality is a covenant with with humanity for all those, Jew or Gentile, who give their allegiance to the God of Israel and to his son Yeshua. Such a claim is not only false and dishonest, but it implies that God's covenants are little more than the typical human contracts that are regularly broken if one side has a reason to get out of it. You know, humans are inherently not trustworthy. But God is inherently faithful to his covenants. Believers, we are not currently married to Christ. But we are betrothed to him. Our acceptance of the God of Israel and His Son as our Savior enters us into this betrothal that is a covenant. But the union has not been consummated such that a legal marriage is formed. This is precisely how betrothal worked among Israel in ancient times. Betrothal is more than modern day engagement. It is closer to, but not quite, marriage. Until there was physical consummation of the betrothed, there was no marriage. In fact, officiated marriage ceremonies only came later in Hebrew history. At first, the betrothal was the highlight. And then later, when the agreed to time arrived, the couple would engage in physical intimacy and the new bride would present a blood-stained marriage cloth to her parents as proof of her virginity and of the consummation, which in essence was the marriage ceremony. This marriage cloth was a prized possession that was even kind of an ancient marriage certificate but it was also proof of her having never been in union with a man before. But here in Revelation 19 
we have the actual wedding ceremony of the lamb to his bride and so the betrothed becomes the wife the consummation is Yeshua's physical presence with us forever and ever the spiritual bond that we have with Messiah today as believers is strengthened to an unbreakable union at the marriage feast when he is with us physically and spiritually. Thus we see and read in verse 7 that the bride has prepared herself. Then we go to Revelation 21.9 and we see that the bride is the new and redeemed Jerusalem that is descending from heaven. So that is, the bride is presented as singular. One. Echad. However, since the idea of Jerusalem is not about the infrastructure, rather it is about the spiritual status of its individual residents, then we can speak of this wedding feast in John's Apocalypse as it does in verse 9, when we read that those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb are blessed. Those who are invited are the residents of the redeemed city of Jerusalem, Jew and Gentile. And redeemed people, by the way, are all that exists at this point in history on earth. Now, together, corporately, these many redeemed individuals of Jerusalem can be said to be the bride of the Lamb represented by the new Jerusalem. The angel who had delivered this astounding oracle to John assured him that these were God's very words. John was so overwhelmed that he just fell in worship before the angel and appropriately the angel scolded him for doing it. He says he's only a fellow servant along with those humans who trust in Yeshua as their Lord and Savior. And then the angel says something that has perplexed many Bible translators and teachers. He says, For the testimony of Yeshua is the spirit of prophecy. Now there's so many explanations attempted for this verse. I'm going to forgo my usual custom of giving you two or three of them and just get right to what I think it's saying. It can be rightly claimed that the law of Moses always pointed to Christ. Christ said this in the Gospel of John. In John 5, 46, he says, For if you really believed Moses, you'd believe me, because it was about me that he wrote. But it can be equally claimed that prophecy spoke about Yeshua as well. Therefore, in this instance, the spirit of prophecy is like our speaking of the spirit of the law. That is, the spirit represents the overriding intent and the real meaning behind the law versus the letter of the law, which is the mechanical part of it. Therefore, the spirit of prophecy is the overriding intent and the real meaning behind prophecy. And Yeshua's testimony, or witness, is the realization of the gospel of salvation. So this difficult sentence means 
that the realization of the gospel of salvation through Yeshua is the overriding intent and the real meaning behind all biblical prophecy. Oh yes, prophecy portended real events over many centuries of history. But on a spiritual level, these portended events pointed towards, maybe even played a role in bringing about, the gospel of salvation through God's Son. Well, verse 11 likely brings a new vision as John says he saw heaven opened. And in this vision, he sees a white horse. Now, this is not the same as the white horse of the four horsemen of the apocalypse back in chapter 6. Here, the white color indicates purity, as its rider is called faithful and true. But this verse says something about the nature and character of Messiah Yeshua that defies the overly simplistic mantra of the modern church that says Jesus is love. Now I probably don't have to explain to most of you that the mental picture of Jesus as our best buddy, our wish genie, as someone who wouldn't harm a fly and who winks and nods at our sins in the name of love is what is most prevalent today. Yet here in Revelation, we are told that he passes judgment, that is, he makes a considered decision in righteousness. He doesn't do it in anger or impulse, but according to God's standard. And this that this is considered decision of his, according to God's standard, is to wage war against the wicked. So, he goes forth and he slays many says his eyes look like a fiery flame. That is, Christ's eyes burned with the passion to carry out the judicial action of destructive vengeance that the Father has ordered. The Lamb has just taken a back seat to the Lion. No more being the sacrifice for sins that saves people from God's wrath. Now Christ goes out as a lion as God's wrath against sinners who refused God's free gift when it was available. The warrior Messiah that the Jews of Yeshua's day had insisted upon, insisted upon, well, he finally makes his appearance. You know, Yeshua has been known by many names over the centuries. Messiah, King, Lord, God's Son, the Rock, Faithful and True. That's just to name a few. However, in verse 12, we're told that he also has a name that no one but himself knows. Now recall that that biblically speaking, names are, are less a means of personal identification more a statement of that person's attributes or character. That's the sense we need to take it here. It is that there is another side of Yeshua that he has yet to reveal. Now, some commentators say that his followers who know him also know this name. It's only the wicked who don't. I don't find that interpretation to be reasonable. It says only Yeshua himself knows this special, mysterious name. It allows no room for others of any ilk to know. 
verse 13 explains that he was wearing a robe dipped in blood. Now this is much like the verse before this one regarding his name. That is, there are varying opinions about what it means and whose blood is soaked into the robe. Some commentators insist that it is Yeshua's own sacrificial blood. But you know, I really don't think it's that hard to determine. This blood-soaked robe is indicative of the countless lives of the wicked that he's taking. Listen to Isaiah 63, starting with Isaiah 63.1. Who is this, coming from Edom, from Botsrah, with clothing stained crimson, so magnificently dressed, so stately in his great strength? It is I who speak victoriously, I, well able to save. Why is your apparel red, your clothes like someone treading a winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. From the peoples, not one was with me. So I trod them in my anger, trampled them in my fury, so their life's blood spurted out onto my clothing and has stained all my garments. For the day of vengeance that was in my heart and my year of redemption have come. I mean, there could be no clearer picture. This Isaiah passage connects directly to Revelation 19.13. Notice in Isaiah how the rhetorical question is asked about who this person is whose clothing is so heavily stained crimson, the color of blood. And the strange answer is that it is the war victor who is speaking. The same victor is who is also able to save. Now, the reason for the blood-stained robe is stated. Their life's blood spurted out onto my clothing. And what was the cause of all of this bloodshed? The day of vengeance that was in my heart and my year of redemption have come. So the question's answered. The horseman on the white horse, Christ, has a robe stained with the blood of his enemies. Yeshua is the divine warrior carrying out divine vengeance. It's interesting to me that immediately in the context of Yeshua judging and killing and wearing a robe stained with the blood of his enemies that we read, he is called the Word of God. So by what standard is Christ judging? It's by the Word of God. And this directly connects to verse 15 that says that out of his mouth comes a sharp sword. See, this is not a military instrument of war. The sharp sword is God's word that instructs and divides. Its truth brings eternal life to the righteous, eternal death to the wicked. And I might add, it's going to be by this same standard that Yeshua will rule over all the earth in the millennial kingdom age. And since he is using this word to judge, then it is a word of judicial instruction. And I contend it's the Torah. What else could it be? In a couple of verses, we'll see another allusion to this. 
upon his white horse, Yeshua leads a huge army who is also riding upon white horses, once again indicating purity. Now I want to stop. I want to make a statement here that we need to remember. These descriptions are figurative and they're symbolic. All of these horses and riders are coming out of where? Out of heaven. Therefore, they can only be spiritual in nature and not physical. So the description we read of them is using earthly terms as illustrations to help us understand what's happening. See, I don't accept that when this day arrives that we're going to be looking up into the sky and we're going to see this cloud of white horses racing along the horizon. So who are these riders of the white horses? Verse 14 is ambiguous as it uses the term armies of heaven. But that's usually reserved for angels. And yet we read that these riders are clothed in white linen which has more of a sense of these being the souls of believers who were at one time living human beings. I think a, a good clue comes from the Gospel of Matthew. In chapter 25, we read, starting at verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, accompanied by all the angels, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be assembled before Him. He will separate people from one another, as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. The sheep He'll place at His right hand, the goats at His left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you whom my father has blessed, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you from the founding of the world. This certainly sounds to me like Yeshua is explaining in Matthew what we are now reading about in Revelation 19. I mean, when else does the Son of Man come in glory for the purpose of assembling the nations for judgment? and for assuming his seat on his throne. I mean, clearly, since he is coming for war, and he is about to take his seat on the throne, this is taking place at the inauguration of the Millennial Kingdom. In fact, the very next verse, verse 15, says that out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. In earlier books of the Bible, this sharp sword is God's word. And so the idea is that his judgment of the nations is based upon the law of Moses. My conclusion is that the riders on the white horses are angels, not the souls of believers. However, I acknowledge that the riders on the white horses could be in addition to all the angels Christ spoke about. I suppose we're just going to have to wait and see. So after the Lord has judged and he struck down the rebellious and the wicked nations and he assumes his seat on his throne in the millennial temple, we're told that he will rule them with a rod of iron. Now some believe that this connects with Psalms 2.9. Psalms 2.9 says, You will break them with an iron rod, shatter them like a clay pot. I'm not convinced of the connection between Psalm 2 and Revelation 19. The main reason is that Psalm 2.9 is about destroying. But the point of Revelation 19.15 is not destroying, but rather ruling. In fact, the Greek word used for ruling is poimaino, 
and it means to feed or to tend a flock. I mean, that's hardly a word that implies war or executions. But the meaning of his ruling, tending the flock, with a rod of iron instead of a shepherd's staff, is unmistakable. Iron is the hardest, it's the most unbending, unyielding metal there was in John's day. This means that Christ will not be looking the other way at disobedience. There will be no tolerance whatsoever for sin and evil. So, by what standard will issue a rule? A standard which inherently has no tolerance for sin and evil? Always requires a price for bad behavior? The Torah, the Law of Moses... And in fact, when we read the final eight chapters of Ezekiel, that provides an excruciatingly detailed blueprint of the Millennial Temple, it calls for sacrifices at the altar and for most of the temple rituals to be reinstated by Levi priests. So clearly, the law code in use at that time will be the law of Moses. Well, we'll conclude chapter 19 and begin chapter 20 next week.